Welcome to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast. As you can tell, my voice is back to normal, so you don't have to hear my raspiness this week, and hopefully you won't have to hear it again as long as I'm doing this podcast. Joining me on today's show is composer and filmmaker Kays Altracci. Kays grew up in Italy, moved to the States as a teenager, actually played in a band while he was in high school with Rob Thomas. Yes, that Rob Thomas from Matchbox 20. Uh, He also talks about combining his passions for both film and music and deciding to pursue both as a career, connecting with the film community in Orlando at the University of Central Florida. He also breaks down the process of coming up with the score for a film, which this was really uh, a learning experience for me because I had no idea how that worked until I talked with him. Um, why filmmakers should keep an open mind, and also talks about transitioning to other aspects of the film industry, including writing and directing his short film In Lucidity, the struggles of the post-production stages, and why he learned so much from those struggles. Really great chat. It was great getting to meet Kays, getting to know him. Uh, Had a great chat. Hopefully you guys enjoy it. Here is my conversation with Kays Altracci. Join on the show this week with my very special guest, composer, producer, and filmmaker, Mr. Kays Altracci. How are you tonight, sir? I am great. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. I'm very excited about this. Absolutely. You know, I know we've been exchanging messages off and on uh, on Facebook over the last couple of months, you know, really you know, trying to nail this thing down. And I, I think the, the interesting thing uh, that dr- kind of drew me to wanting to have you on the show is I've never had a, you know, really anyone with film composing and scoring background. So I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about that. But before we do, uh, I kind of wanted to start from the beginning. Uh, so where exactly are you from and where did you grow up? Well, like despite my uh, name that's a little bit more ethnic, I was actually born and, uh, and I grew up in Florence in Italy. Uh, so I, you know, like I, I don't know if you've ever been to like uh, Florence, but I mean, it's a beautiful city. It's, um, you know, um, it's basically like, you know, where you have all of the Renaissance uh, works of art. And for me, that was just my uh, my neighborhood, my digs. Uh, and, you know, so I, I think that was kind of like a really great exposure for anybody. But I was fortunate enough to uh, to grow up there. And um, and when I was a teenager, my family actually relocated to uh, central Florida, to Orlando, And, uh, you know, because of my dad's business and, uh, you know, and, uh, and all of a sudden that gave me like (laughs) radically like 180 degree, very different point of view. Right. Like, I mean, one moment I'm I'm literally growing up with like the, the, the works of, uh, Leonardo da Vinci and, uh, Michelangelo. And, um, and the next moment, um, um, you know, at the time, like we were literally like watching, like from Orlando, you could see like the space shuttle take off. And uh, we had like uh, Epcot Center, which, um, you know, was, was was a very futuristic kind of environment. So for me, it was like very sci-fi. I was like, all my dreams came true. You know, it was um, it was an exciting time. So you really had a nice contrast of, you know, growing up around, you know, the kind of, I guess, what you would call the fine arts. And then when you moved to the States, you had that little bit of Western, Western culture and influence. Exactly, exactly. I mean, a lot of Western culture and influence, 
because as you can imagine, I mean, it was like culture shock, but, uh, but it was fantastic. I mean, it was, it was a great experience. And, um, and when I, um, you know, when I was in Italy, I, I wasn't really like, I mean, I've always been like very kind of creatively driven and, uh, but I didn't quite know exactly what I wanted to do. And then when, uh, when, as I said, when my family relocated to Florida, I had my first interactions with, uh, with music and uh, other musicians. And I got really, really sucked into, um, you know, like playing in bands. And all of a sudden that became like my, my big thing. That was, that was my passion. And um, I, um, I was lucky enough actually to uh, run into, in, in high school, um, uh, Rob Thomas, who uh, later on ended up um, being the lead singer for the band Matchbox 20. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, but like, I mean, we, we literally just met in high school and we started a band because I was like, why not? That sounds like fun. He could sing. And I, I was playing like uh, keyboards and synths. And anyway, it was it was really great, um, you know, great way to grow up and great way to kind of uh, express myself. And um, when it came time to graduating from high school, I, uh, you know, I started thinking, well, I love music very much. But I also love movies. Um, I, I was really, really uh, sucked into like, you know, like the, the, the magic of filmmaking. And I thought, well, like uh, it makes the most sense then to kind of get involved in film scoring because um, the, to me, that was like the perfect marriage of, uh, of two things that I was very passionate about. And um, at the time, uh, one of the few colleges that actually had a film scoring uh, degree was uh, Berkeley up in Boston. So I ended up relocating in Boston and I went to school there. And, um, and it, you know, once again, like I was exposed to like yet another, uh, bit of a culture shock and, um, you know, and, and I think it kind of shaped me, uh, tremendously. And, um, and after I graduated from Berkeley with a degree in film scoring, I, uh, I thought, where should I go next? I mean, Los Angeles really made the most sense. There was a lot of film production in Los Angeles. However, at the time, um, Central Florida, turns out, was really buzzing about, um, um, you know, this new, like, uh, film productions and television that was coming uh, to shoot over there. I think, um, you know, the state had uh, some incentives, but also um, Universal Studios and Disney MGM had opened up um, sound stages. So it was, uh, it was attracting a lot of, like, really great shows um, at the time. And I thought that's perfect. I already have like, you know, all my friends, I, I already know the place. Uh, I'm going to go right back to Orlando and I'm going to kick off my career right there. So, uh, so that's exactly what I did. Well, that's kind of the cool thing, especially, you know, today is that, you know, Los Angeles for the longest time was known as the go-to place, but now you hear about things that go on in, you know, New Orleans, Atlanta, um, even Texas. So it's for sure. It's cool. And even, you know, back then for you to find, you know, somewhere even besides LA is, is pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, for me, it just worked out perfectly. As I said, I mean, I was already, you know, extremely familiar with, uh, you know, with the central Florida area with Orlando in particular. And, uh, you know, and, and the fact that there was this at the time it was called like, uh, they were, they were trying to like call it Hollywood East, um, and, um, and I thought, wow, this is, I, I couldn't have possibly planned it any better. Um, and, 
and it was fun for a while. I mean, um, the, the industry was really booming. This was like in the mid nineties. And, um, but what really interested me, you know, uh, at the time was once again to like kind of connect with filmmakers and, um, and this was like, uh, you know, the, the time was when like, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino had done films and, uh, um, you know, uh, um, usual suspects had come out and, um, you know, there, there were a handful of new directors like, uh, Steven Soderbergh and, um, you know, and they kind of like represented this new kind of indie voice for filmmakers. So, um, the university of central Florida had a very, very tiny film program at the time, but it attracted like some really, really interesting filmmakers. And what ended up happening is that I connected almost immediately with uh, the film community um, that was coming out of like the University of Central Florida. And, um, and one of the uh, directors that came out of there, which I'm still very good friends with to this day, uh, was uh, Dan Myrick, who ended up going to make the Blair Witch Project. So, um, so that was kind of like a very fortunate type of, um, you know, like connection that I got early on. Well, that's the thing is you never really know quite who you're going to meet when you do any type of, you know, networking or even if it's going to school with someone. You just never know who you're going to meet that could ultimately, you know, take you to where you want to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's it, it makes me feel like really, you know, proud of all my friends when, you know, when I open like some magazine and I'll, I'll recognize somebody. You know, um, and I'm like, oh, that's that's great. That's fantastic. And and you start kind of seeing like all your peers that you grew up with that ultimately went on to accomplish really great things. Um, you know, so, somebody else that, um, you know, I became uh, friends with and who was also a filmmaker from the University of Central Florida was uh, Steve Wise that uh, I believe you had on your show before. Mm -hmm. And um, Steve now runs, uh, you know, he's, he's one of the guys that uh, runs uh, Pensacon, uh, which is like one of the like fastest growing, um, you know, conventions, uh, fan conventions in the U S right now. So, uh, so, I mean, it's, I, I think like the, the, the time was right in central Florida at that time to attract a lot of really great talent that then went on to kind of, you know, uh, to really blossom. So, um, I, w I was very fortunate to be there at that time for sure. Oh, for sure. And yes, yeah, Steve's a, a very good friend of mine. He's actually, uh, by the time this airs, this will have already happened, but in December, I'm directing and doing my first short film, and he's, oh, that's awesome. he's my uh, assistant director, so he's been really helping me out a lot with that. I, I, I couldn't think of a better person to help you out on your first uh, step into uh, this crazy world, so uh, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, something I'm curious about, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Can you walk me through, because this is something that's always fascinated me, mm -hmm. mostly because I have no idea how this happens. The process of creating a score for a film, you know, because whether it's music on the radio or it's music in film, music to me is very key to invoking an emotional response because you can see things happen on screen, but it's when you have the right score that goes along mm -hmm. with it, it really takes it over the top as far as whether it's to cause anxiety, happiness, sadness. Uh, 
Can you walk me through the process of like how you come up with the music for a film? For sure, for sure. I, I, I mean, thank you for asking. I mean, I think it, this is one of those subjects that I don't think it's uh, particularly well covered in film schools. And uh, sometimes I'm kind of surprised that, uh, you know, a lot of directors come out of film school and, and they're not quite 100 percent sure, you know, what the role of music is in a film and how it works and how to interface with a director. Um, but for me, like, honestly, like the first step is just to have a nice chat with a director. I mean, this is, you know, this is somebody's vision and my goal is to somehow be able to get into his or her brain and to try to understand what it is that they're trying to do, you know, cause there's a million different ways that you can interpret the same scene. And, um, so, so for me, like, uh, the very first step is to just kind of start getting on the same, uh, page with, uh, with the director of the film. And, uh, sometimes we'll just kind of exchange, exchange ideas. And, um, you know, sometimes I'll kind of send some, uh, mp3s of uh of stuff that i composed or, or maybe like we'll we'll kind of like send like uh youtube links back and forth of uh like little cues from certain tra- soundtracks and you know and it just kind of becomes this like really really um you know creative kind of um you know like mix of ideas and um you know and that usually helps tremendously to give me a direction as to where i want to go with the music and uh, the next step really um, comes into like just looking at a film, um, you know, from beginning to end and starting to identify where music would be most useful. And, um, you know, and, and that's something that I think takes a special type of uh, uh, mindset because, um, you know, like sometimes th- there can be the uh, tendency to use music a lot more than it's necessary. And to me, music is a little bit like uh, like a spice, you know, and um, the more you use it, the more it kind of neutralizes itself. So for me, part of part of my job is to kind of like look at a film and say, okay, I think these are some good places where music could really, really uh, amp up the emotional content of the scene or it could, uh, you know, really drive up the tension or drive up the romance or, or what have you. So to me, that's the next step is just to kind of figure out like where are the best places for the music. And beyond that, just kind of starts, um, you know, the process of composing. I mean, uh, you know, I'm myself, I'm very like, uh, you know, technologically driven. So everything's kind of computer based, um, you know, using synthesizers and sample libraries and, you know, like um, whatever other tools are at my disposal to kind of create this music that I'm hearing in my head. And, uh, and, and usually that's kind of like, you know, that, that process, that part of the process is a lot of back and forth with a director, you know, where I'll send them one cue, um, you know, to, uh, match a certain scene and, uh, and then I might get back, uh, notes and they might say, well, you know, like this is, uh, this is working pretty well for me, but the first part is not as strong as I wanted, or maybe they might think, uh, can we, can we make this a little bit longer? Can we make this a little bit shorter and so on and so forth? And, uh, you know, and, and it, it is a collaborative effort. I mean, to me, one of the magical elements of filmmaking is the fact that it is a true collaborative art. So uh, so that's part of the process. I mean, I don't know if that kind of helps give you an idea of how I approach it. Oh, for sure. And it's, I can't tell you how many times I've used this analogy, but I think it's very true, is that we're all little cogs in the big machine that is filmmaking. 
<laughs> yes, I, I suppose that's a good way to put it. It's kind of what drew me into it as well, because, you know, I took some classes when I was in college, you know, locally here in Pensacola, and I, I fell in love with just the process of making, you know, movies or TV, whatever it might be, because there, there are differences, but there are some similarities. But the, the core concept is everyone has to come together and do their job, but they do it together. And there are a lot of long days, but mm-hmm. it's so much fun. It is a lot of fun. And uh, I mean, I, I would encourage everybody that's involved in filmmaking to always keep an open mind because you never know when, you know, where a great idea is going to come from. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I think like uh, filmmaking is a great example of where, you know, you run into like all these kind of happy accidents and all of a sudden like you get like some real magical moment on screen. Uh, you know, this can happen with the actors, this can happen with the composer, with the cinematographer, with the editor. And I think, you know, um, if you're lucky, you'll get like a number of those little magic moments and the end results will really be, um, you know, better than the sum of its parts, which, um, you know, which I think is, I I mean, to me, it's magic, you know, (laughs) there's no other way for me to describe it. Uh, the process is, you know, it, it is magical. It is. And I love the, the Bob Ross comparison about happy accidents. It's, it's, it's yeah. totally true. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and like, don't, you know, what, what, one of the things that, you know, I think people sometimes make the assumption, um, especially if they're working, you know, outside of the film industry, you know, they make the assumption that a certain director or a certain composer or a certain actor or what have you, um, is, you know, has this perfect plan in their head and they're like realizing it, um, you know, just by doing exactly what they plan to do all along. And, and that's, you know, and, and, and at the end they get like the perfect product, but what actually kind of, you know, branching into filmmakers taught me is that that's not the case at all. I mean, it, it is a bit of an unpredictable journey. You start out with a certain, um, image in your head, you start out with a certain vision and as you go through the process, it changes, it morphs, it evolves. And, um, you know, what you end up at the other end, hopefully is much more superior than what you thought you were going to get at the very beginning of the process, you know? No, I, I completely agree. And even, you know, the process of making my film, because as of this recording, I'm finalizing the casting you know, I even changed the ages of some of the characters because two of the auditions that I got were mm-hmm. way better than anything that I thought I was going to get. And I had to have those two people. So right. I had to change a little bit of the story, but it was very, very minor. But, but like you said, you know, it's if, if, you, if you're so tunnel visioned with what you want to do, you'll miss out on something that, yeah, it may not 100% be your idea, but it's better for the project in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, to, to me, that's critical to, uh, to just be really open minded. I mean, when I'm when I'm composing for a film, I try to be as open minded as possible. And I welcome, um, you know, when a director comes to me and says, hey, you know, I just listened to, for instance, like, uh, you know, I just watched this movie on Netflix and I really, really liked the score, I, I don't 
clamp up and say, oh, screw you. I don't, you know, I, I'm only going to do what I'm going to do. It's like quite the opposite for me. It's like, oh, that's awesome. Let me, let me watch it. Let me, let me, let me see what's really working from this other score. Let me see if I can kind of, uh, um, incorporate some of those elements into what I'm doing and make it better, you know? So to me, that's part of the process. No, absolutely. You should always be doing your research and because if you're, if you stop learning, what's the point of doing it anymore? Yeah, that's true. Uh, as far as the, the actual process of, you know, creating the music, uh, do you have any, like, are you strictly writing the music? Do you, partake in any of the actual playing of the instruments right well i mean technically i'm playing all the well on, on many of the scores i play most of the in instruments myself in the sense that i am um you know when i'm playing all the parts in the computer and um you know uh, for instance if i'm doing like an orchestral score right mm -hmm. um right, right now i'm actually doing a uh, a project for um for nasa which is uh it's it's one of their videos where they're um, you know they're, they're um, promoting like their uh, launch services, and um, and they wanted like, like this big rich orchestral score. And as I'm um, playing all the parts individually one by one, I mean there's no there's no button that says you know just press one button and and all of a sudden everything is done. It doesn't work that way. Um, but I, I try to put myself into the mindset of how would a violin player play this? How would a trombone play this part? You know, and um, so I mean, I very much have to think about, you know, how a certain uh, performer would approach playing a certain part, and then try to mimic it myself. And um, so, you know, like on on most most projects, um, you know, I end up like kind of doing a great deal of playing myself. And then um, on, uh, you know, on, on some of the larger projects, I actually have like the, um, you know, honor or luxury really to uh, work with other musicians. And, um, you know, and, and then, of course, you know, it becomes, you know, once again, like this collaborative sort of process that becomes that much more, you know, rich and uh, interesting because now you're you know, I, I wrote the music and then I'm bringing this instrumentalist to, to perform it and they're going to come in and they're going to have their own interpretation of how to play it. And, um, you know, and, and to me, that's also like a, an awesome experience. Um, I mean, recently I was uh, very, very fortunate to uh, work with uh, uh, this um, cellist. His name is Cameron Stone. And uh uh, most um, most people don't recognize the name Cameron Stone, but um, a great deal of people probably heard his playing because he's the guy that plays the the main cello melody in um, for the Game of Thrones theme. So um, so cool. for me it was like yeah it was it was really awesome you know he's we we're just kind of chit chatting in the studio and, and all of a sudden he just kind of breaks into like the Game of Thrones dun, dun, da, 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 da. and I was like oh my god this is crazy. <laughs> Uh, I haven't got into that show too much. I've seen season one, but that that mm -hmm. intro theme now to me is just it's a modern day iconic piece of like television you know, music. Like as soon oh, as you sure. hear it, you know what it is. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, yeah, I, I agree 100 percent. And I would give you the advice of like just kind of maybe, maybe you might want to hold off 
starting to watch Game of Thrones until uh, HBO finishes the whole series since I don't even know like what they're doing right now. Like I know they're they're trying to shoot like the final season, but I don't even know when it's coming out. So <laughs> maybe maybe you should hold off until that's out. That's what I was thinking. I, I want to say they've said possibly next year. Yeah, but it's crazy they're... because every episode is going to be like its own movie, which is insane yeah, to me. Like I, I, I have no idea how much that they've spent on that, but they're going to make it back. Oh, I'm sure they've already made it back. Probably. I mean, it's. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you that I signed on to, uh, you know, I subscribed to HBO as a result of Game of Thrones. I was like, I want to watch this, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure they got like tons of um, subscribers to, uh, you know, to their services. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's a fantastic show, and it's you know, it's to me, it's really, um, you know, exciting to kind of see. How, how much TV, how much like television shows have changed and evolved and now they're rivaling, you know, like big, you know, feature films, big, big tentpole, um, you know, blockbusters as far as production is concerned, as far as uh, the visual effects. I mean, the, the caliber of actors, I mean, it's it's incredible, you know. Well, as someone who is, you know, I have grew up loving movies and I love the the attention now that TV series are getting. I think the advantage that, and I use the the Marvel Netflix shows as an, as an example compared to the movies. With, mm-hmm. with the shows, I feel like you have a little bit more freedom to like flesh out certain characters and their storylines because you have 13 episodes to do it, whether they're 22 minutes long or they're 45 minutes long. Whereas right. in a movie, you have two to two and a half hours, sometimes longer, to wrap up that portion of the story. So I feel like you kind of get to know the characters a little bit more with shows as opposed to movies. Yeah, I think so too. You know, I um, last weekend I went to see, uh, um, I was invited to a screening of uh, Black Panther, and that was like the second time that I saw it. And it's amazing how how many more details of the story that I picked up when I saw it the second time, because... Obviously, they had like a lot of ideas and a lot of uh, really interesting plot twists and character development that they were trying to squeeze into, you know, I think that's like two and a half hour movie. Um, so because of, you know, it was so accelerated the first time that I saw it, I missed out on a lot of those little details, you know, but but the beauty of um, television is that they can take their time, you know, so I'm, I'm watching you know, like uh, when I watch shows, like for instance, um, I'm a big fan of the show Better Call Saul, mm-hmm. which is a, a spinoff of the Breaking Bad uh, series, and I just love that they're taking their sweet old time to develop all those little, you know, all these characters and all the little plot twists, and they're kind of building all this subtlety into it. And to me, it's like I don't think you can do that with, you know, if you're limited to like two hours, two and a half hours, you know, but. But they have, I guess, like 10 hours per season. So it's, you know, it's fantastic that they're doing that. Uh, kind of, you know, talking about other movies and TV shows, are there any scores, you know, whether they can be they can be either film or TV just off the top of your head that you that you really enjoy that you've seen recently or even of all time? Um, you know, I um, I I was a really big fan of um, the composer for um, the, the, the score for the first Sicario movie. Um, 
and he is, uh, I believe, like he's uh, uh, Swedish, but uh, um, his his name is uh, Johan Johansson. Mm-hmm. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. And um, unfortunately, he passed away. Uh, I think it was uh, last year that uh, that he unfortunately like, passed away. Like very young guy, and uh, I, I don't know, like you know, maybe he had like some. Uh, health issues, unfortunately, but, um, but I thought he was doing like some of the more really interesting, uh, scoring work, you know? So for me, like Sicario is, is one of like the really, really fantastic, uh, scores of, you know, to come out like recently. Um, he also did the arrival, uh, which, um, you know, with the, with the spaceship and, um, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the whole language, uh, type of thing. And I thought that was like also another incredible score. So I mean, I really um, I love any score that is you know uh, a little bit unexpected and a little bit unusual in its approach. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, this composer called Alexander Desplat. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, with him, but um, he, um, he like the, the most recent thing that he did was uh, Isle of Dogs by uh, Wes mm-hmm. Anderson. But he's a really, really uh, diverse composer. I mean, he's he's done anything from you know, the King's Speech to Argo to um, uh, the Shape of Water, and um, you know, and once again, like I mean, you listen to his scores, and to me, they're very unexpected and they're very, uh, you know, they, they just kind of catch you by surprise. But they do so like really well, like in a way that's not distracting. You know, like sometimes there's. Uh, um, there can be such a thing as like too much score and too, you know, like a score that kind of takes on the center stage and all of a sudden it's not really about the scene, but it's about the music. Um, but to me, like a, a composer that can manage to create something really interesting yet at the same time, not overstep the boundaries of what a score, you know, the, the role of the score in the film to me, that's, you know, the, those are the composers that I'm really, really impressed by. So Fantastic. I haven't had a chance to see Isle of Dogs yet, but I do really want to. Uh, it's such a great film. It's, you know, it, even if you're not into dogs. <laughs> no, I love dogs, so I definitely want to go see it. <laughs> um, kind of transitioning into your filmmaking side of things. You, sure. you, you're, you're composing and producing music. What was it that made you want to dabble into you know other aspects of filmmaking? Well, um, I mean, you know, I always kind of say that, like, you know, for, for me, like, it's always been like this, um, you know, passion for both music and passion for films. Um, when I was, uh, you know, when I was a kid, like one of one of the first records that I actually bought was the soundtrack to Escape from New York. Um, that's that's kind of like, you know, and, and I was excited about that, both for the musical aspect, but also because I love that film. It's such a big influence for me. And um you know, and, and I started just kind of, you know, as I said, like I started on this path with, uh, you know, creating soundtracks for films and it was a very rewarding path and I really enjoyed the process and I enjoyed working with various filmmakers and I had like the, the luxury of, um, you know, observing from, you know, from the sidelines, you know, the, the process that all these different directors would, you know, how they would approach making the film. 
And for me, it was like such a, you know, an incredibly educational way of experiencing filmmaking. Um, and, um, and little by little, it started becoming a little bit more of a collaborative effort that would move beyond just the music, you know, where I would start having conversation with the director and we would discuss editing, you know, is this scene working, you know, how could it be improved? And we would start discussing other things that were, you know, once again, outside of the film process, uh, I mean, outside of the music process and had more to do with like the overall scope of the film. And, um, you know, and this kind of became more and more, um, you know, frequent until at some point I was thinking, oh my God, like I, I'm starting to feel like I'm a little bit on the wrong side of this conversation because, you know, here I am kind of discussing, you know, elements of the film that, you know, don't have anything to do with the music, but have everything to do with, you know, what the film is trying to be. But my role in the process is as composer and, um, you know, and, and, and obviously like, you know, when you're working, you know, in a supportive role, you have to respect the hierarchy. You have to respect, you know, what, what the vision that the director is trying to make, you know? So for me, at some point, this itch became so strong that I was like, I just have to go out there and see what's going to happen if I actually create, you know, um, a film, if I direct, if I write and direct it and go through the process myself with, you know, being in charge of all the decisions so that, um, um, you know, it's, it's basically all my responsibility. You know, I, I had to kind of find out what, you know, what that would yield. If nothing else, just because of the fact that it would give me more respect and more uh, understanding for, uh, you know, for the directors that I was interacting with. So I thought like either way, this is a good educational experience for me. And, and that's what I did. I, uh, I set out to make um, a short film that I had been, um, you know, there was this story that had uh, been bouncing around my head for, um, you know, a couple of years. And I was like, okay, you know, let's, let's start there and see what happens. And, uh, and I created this film called um, Appointment, which um, follows this um, homeless guy through, um, you know, uh, Los Angeles. And he's kind of, um, he has all these visions and he's got all this uh, um, kind of instinctual, um, you know, drive to, to do certain things. And uh, he doesn't even quite understand why, but he knows that he has to be at a certain place at a certain time because something is going to happen. And um, so, so there was a short film that kind of follows him as he arrives at his destination and then witnesses what, what happens. Um, it's, it's a little bit, it was... I, I have to admit, it was a little bit, uh, more, more than a little bit inspired by um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you know, where you have, like, uh, all these people that they know they have to go to uh, the Devil's Tower. They just don't really know why, but they know that they have to get there, you know? <laughs> I was actually just about to ask you about that, so you, you answered my next question. Yeah. So, um, so I, I liked it. I mean, I liked the process. I liked, uh, you know, to kind of, as I said, have you know, direct control of where, you know, of what I wanted to do and, and to kind of shape and steer my creative vision. Uh, and, um, and I think, uh, you know, that 
opened up a whole like you know proverbial uh, Pandora's box for me, and all of a sudden I saw these um, you, you know like to to me like all of a sudden it's like the world was like kind of you know creativity just kind of exploded. It was like oh my god like I can I can do this too. So I should be able to you know get all these kind of crazy ideas out of my head and and try to realize them. And uh, you know and of course. It's um, it's a lot easier said than done because you know I think the process is very very challenging and um, and it takes a, a huge amount of effort, a huge amount of energy and um, and and really a huge amount of dedication to it because um, because that's something that I think uh, you encounter like you know you you are uh, literally um, you know trying to like kind of force your way through all these barriers somehow some way you're trying to like kind of arrive at where you need to be and it's uh i mean it's it's lonely it really is it's a it's a lonely process at the top i didn't believe it when i was just composing and and after i got a chance to experience directing i was like oh my god it's just me i'm just trying to like literally push this boulder um up this hill um and when i say it's just me it doesn't mean that you know I didn't. Uh, I wasn't fortunate enough to have the collaboration of a lot of incredibly talented people. Um, what I mean is, is mostly from an emotional standpoint. You know, um, I, I always kind of say nobody's allowed to care more about making a film than the director. You know, everybody else that is helping you make it, you know, they're there to fall. You know, to to help you realize your vision. But the main emotional drive to get that vision off the ground. It has to come from you. You know, there's uh, there's no other way around it. For sure. So, and, and oh, yeah. go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say props to you for you know having the the drive and the will to do that because it's like you said it's when you're when you're not to make the position sound conceited but when you're the center of the whole process. You know, it, it's it's a lot of work, and you put in a lot of hours to do it. So, and it's it's not for everyone. And you know, props to you for stepping outside of your comfort zone and doing it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I I mean, I could have not done it without the help of you know a bunch of like really incredibly talented people that came out to help me. A lot of them are like some of my best friends, um, and um, you know, but. But the emotional, you know, you know, the the when you're when you're at the helm of creating a film, uh, there's nothing else for you to hide behind. It's um, it's your idea, and if it works or if it doesn't work, it's entirely your fault. And uh, so be, the, you don't have anything to hide behind. You know, like as a composer, I can work on a film and I can kind of agree or disagree. On, on some of the other creative choices, you know, maybe, uh, you know, the casting is great, maybe it's not so great, or maybe the edit is, um, is a little uh, too long or what have you. But as a composer, I have this luxury of saying, well, you know what, you know, I'm trying to do my best on my end of the, you know, of this bargain. And, um, you know, and everything else is kind of beyond my control. So, th so that gives you like a certain psychological kind of barrier certain like um comfort zone that you're like well you know i'm trying i'm trying my best but ultimately is it a good movie i don't know you know it's it's not really up to me 
And when you're the director, that goes away. That safety blanket is no longer there. It's, you know, is it a good film? Is it a bad film? Uh, that's, you know, it, it's entirely up to you. And, uh, and that can be scary. That can be like a very intimidating uh, part of the process. So, No, for sure. Uh, kind of moving on to talk about your film in Lucidity, which you sent sure. to me, and I, I had the I had the pleasure of watching. Uh, what was kind of the inspiration behind the story? Because you wrote it and you directed the film. So, what what was the inspiration behind it? Well, I um, every, everything that I do is obviously very influenced by you know things that I uh, might have seen as a kid. Um, I was always interested in the world of dreams, and uh, I watched uh, a film called Dreamscape. Um, and, uh, it really, really affected me. I was like, Oh my God, this is so cool. And, um, and when it came time to do my second project, I had actually heard, um, another podcast called uh, radio lab and, um, you know, where, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit like this American life, except a little bit more scientific in, in topic. Right. And um, and one of the things that they were discussing on the podcast was lucid dreaming. And to me, it was like so fascinating. It's like, wait, wait a minute. Like, you mean like somebody can actually be asleep, but you're conscious of what is happening. You can actually affect, you know, the things that are you're dreaming about. To me, that, that just sounds it just kind of blew my mind. And um, I loved the subject. I loved, you know, the idea. And I immediately just started writing down like a screenplay that would contain like, you know, those, uh, you know, lucid dreaming and, you know, all of those kind of different things that, um, uh, you know, that, that have to do with like the process of dreams. Um, I mean, I, I did a lot of research and, uh, it turns out that science doesn't really quite know a hundred percent why we dream, you know, it's still, you know, there's a lot of, uh, theories about it. There's a lot of speculation, but nobody really knows. And, you know, like we're, we're exploring space, we're exploring the oceans, but here is something that everybody experiences every single day of their life. And, um, and we know very little about it. So, so that was also very fascinating for me. And, um, I, um, you know, like I, I created, I wrote this uh, screenplay and, uh, it was very ambitious and we set out, to make it, um, myself and, um, you know, a very talented, but small team of, um, you know, uh, of cast and a crew. And, uh, one of the thing, you know, one of the people that was extremely fortunate to have on board this project was, um, a really fantastic actor called Larry Cedar. And, uh, Larry, um, on top of being like, you know, very accomplished uh, actor in his own right. Um, what I didn't realize when I originally cast him is that he was um, he was the monster. He played the monster in uh, Dreamscape. He played oh, wow. this uh, this uh, you know kind of co- cobra snake uh, type of creature. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and it's funny because I didn't even know that until after we shot the film. And then uh, I don't know why, but I was. Um, reading something up about Larry and I was like, holy crap. He was, he wasn't the very film that, you know, kind of influenced me and, and, um, you know, inspired for me to make this. So it's such a weird connection. It's a small world. It totally is. But, um, 
but anyway, uh, you know, we, um, we went ahead with, with the production. It was, um, I think we shot for, uh, I think it was like eight or nine days, which is a lot for a short film. And it was a fairly long, uh, and, uh, complicated screenplay. And, um, I was very ambitious in the, in the amount of stunts that I wanted to have and the amount of visual effects. And, um, you know, but, but of course always working with a very contained budget, you know, cause that's always the big, um, you know, the, the big constraints in making a film when you're like a small independent filmmaker, it's, it's always money. Right. So, um, we shot it and then uh, all of a sudden I found myself in post-production and I'm thinking, okay, now I need to, um, try to figure out how to solve all these things that are in the script, but I really have no idea how to, how to create, right? I mean, I can, uh, I can edit a little bit. I'm not like, um, super great editor, but I can kind of, you know, I know my way around like premiere and, um, and I started editing it and then I had to, you know, I had all these kind of creative ideas as to, um, what the monster should be and, uh, you know, and how he should look. And, um, on, on set, I was working with this, um, very talented dancer and, um, performer called Stephen Hughes, who, uh, played the monster, um, on, you know, as we were filming and he did an incredible job, but I also wanted to enhance his, um, his kind of monstrosity by having these, kind of like tentacles that, that come out of him and, um, you know, and, and kind of almost like a, um, you know, like an extension of his kind of evilness, so to speak. And I had no idea how to do it. I was like, okay, I, I don't really know how to approach it. And, um, and I started connecting with visual effects artists and I started to try to find somebody who could kind of solve this problem for me that I was like, I need, I need tentacles to grow out of this creature and kind of do things, you know, how do I, how do I get that done? And, uh, it, I, I was basically like searching for somebody to come and help on the project for uh, about a year. I had like a small budget for visual effects, but not nearly enough as you know, what is probably necessary. And I couldn't really find anybody. I, um, I mean, I, you know, I had like some people that were interested, but ultimately, you know, they told me what I was asking was like just too much work and it just wasn't worth it for them. And, um, and it was a little bit frustrating for me. And, and to me, like the only solution was to see if I can do it myself. Uh, I mean, it was really, there was no other choice. I was like, either I have to abandon this project because I can't get it finished or I have to teach myself how to actually kind of make these things that I have in my head that, that, you know, the movie was, was shot with these things in mind. And, uh, and that's what I did. And it was, it kind of started me on a whole other crazy journey that, uh, that was, um, I mean, it, it was exciting, but it was also very, very frustrating for sure. Um, if you can imagine, I, I had no idea how to do visual effects whatsoever. I had, um, you know, a little bit of limited knowledge with After Effects, uh, which is, you know, basically Photoshop for video. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, when it came to actual CG work, it was completely new to me. I was like, I, I don't really know what I'm doing. 
And, um, and I started watching a bunch of YouTube videos and I started doing research and, um, I chose this uh, software called uh, cinema 4d, mm-hmm. which, um, which seemed like the most artist friendly at the time. And, um, and I was thinking, okay, you know, this, this could be interesting. Let me see, let me see, you know, how hard could it be? Right. <laughs> and basically like two years later, I was still going at it. I mean, I was still learning. I had gotten a lot better after a couple of years, but there was so much work that had to be done. And, um, and also when we were shooting the film, I didn't really, you know, I didn't have this experience of working with visual effects, so a lot of the footage that we had had not had not been shot properly. You know, it didn't have the right tracking markers, so you could kind of track the camera and post. And it, did, you know, and the green screen that we shot against uh, wasn't very even, so um, it needed a lot of uh, this uh, rotoscoping work, where you're manually going frame by frame and isolating all those elements. You know, like the actors, so that um, so that you can kind of put something else behind them. And um, it just turned into like this uh, incredible amount of work. I mean, I, I, I should have tracked how many hours I put into it, but I really honestly, you know, I don't know. I'm sure it was in the thousands of hours. Um, and every single day of, you know, that I was doing this post-production myself, um, as, you know, keep in mind as I was still, you know, I have to make a living. So, you know, whenever I get like some composing job, that has to take priority. So, you know, like it was a lot of juggling of different things. But I mean, every single day that I was involved in post-production on that film, I was wondering like, am I going to finish this? I, I don't know. Like, I mean, it's, uh, um, you know, I was wondering if maybe I should, I would be better off just abandoning the project and, and you know, maybe like regrouping and, and um, you know, maybe focusing on, on something else completely. But, um, but, you know, I, I wanted to stick it out. I, um, as a filmmaker, I feel that it's my responsibility to deliver a finished product, not just for myself, but for everybody else that came on board and helped me. Uh, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's part of the deal that I make with everybody that, um, you know, cinematographers, the actors, the, you know, the, the crew and everybody else. It's like, hey, um, if you believe in me, if you give me your time to, to kind of realize this vision, I'm going to make sure that I deliver to you a finished product, you know, for, for better or for worse. And, uh, yeah, and that's what I did. Like, I mean, I was, um, you know, overall, like it took over three years for me to complete the project, but it's finished. And, uh, you know, we had a really fantastic, um, festival run, which, um, you know, led us also to, um, uh, to screen a Pensacon, which mm-hmm. was a big honor for me. And, um, you know, and, uh, recently I, I released it on uh, Vimeo so that everybody can see it. Um, because I thought it was time to, you know, to just kind of, we had finished the, the festival run. We had done like a lot of, uh, screenings and now it's like, okay, you know, I'm just going to put it on Vimeo cause I want as many people to watch this as possible. So, so that's where it's at right now. So, <laughs> That's an insane story. It, it's, it's, it's an ins- <laughs> like, I mean, it's, I, I wouldn't recommend it. And yet at the same time, I wouldn't change a thing about it because I learned so much. Well, I mean, that's, sometimes that's just what you have to do is, and you were in the situation where you had to learn this completely foreign thing to you to get 
your project done. And I, I will say, you know, I've never dabbled into Cinema 4D. I've got the software at my work computer. I've mm -hmm. opened it once and instantly I was intimidated by it. It, it is intimidating. Um, it's, you know, like um, I mentioned After Effects and After Effects, it's, um, you know, allows to do a great deal of things, you know, like you want to like, you know, maybe replace a sky in the background. You want to like add some elements uh, that are not in the scene. And it's a fantastic tool to do that. Mm -hmm. However, when you open up this door into the world of actually CG elements, it's it's a whole other ball game. And um, I'm actually um, I'm, I'm involved right now. Like what I'm working on right now is uh, is a music video that uh, we uh, shot um, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, what I decided to do, just because I guess I'm. <laughs> somewhat of a masochistic when it comes to these kind of things is that we were going to shoot once again on green screen and I was going to create this entire CG environment for it. And, uh, you know, and of course I wanted to look as, you know, realistic as I can possibly make it. And, um, you know, and, and, and the amount of things that you start having to think about when you're dealing with, uh, this kind of, you know, 3d elements and, um, and how they sit in space, and and what they look like, and what um, what texture they have on them, it's insane. It's, um, I mean, it's it doesn't surprise me that you know when when you're watching like a, a Marvel film or you know any film that's got like a great deal of CG, there's like a small army of guys, uh, you know, in the credits because you really need that many people because there's so much to think about, and uh, and when you're doing it all yourself. It, it is very overwhelming, you know, but it's also very rewarding because, you know, all of a sudden, like it's, you know, whatever it is that you're thinking in your in your head, you're you're kind of, you know, bringing it out into the real world. And, and once again, to me, like to, to use this word magical, I mean, it, it really is a magical process. And, um, you know, I, I love surprising myself, uh, you know, I'll, I'll create something. And I'm not even sure like if it's going to work. And then I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll watch the render or, you know, like uh, usually like the, the, this stuff like takes hours and hours, sometimes days to kind of render out. And uh, you don't even know like if the camera move that you designed or, or the way like this uh, environment works is going to look any good until it's all finished. You can kind of watch it as a video. And um you know, and there's so many times that I'm like, I, I don't know if this is going to work at all. You know, and then you go through the render and then like uh, usually like uh, I wake up the next day and I go into the studio and I'll see what came out of the render process. And then I'll watch it. And I'm like, wow, like it's it works. It, it weirdly, you know, against all odds, it seems to kind of work. And, and it's basically what I had in mind. And uh, and as I said, that's a, that's a magical feeling for sure. No, absolutely. And as I said earlier, you know, props to you for having the drive to do it. Cause a, a lot of people, when they would get to that point, they would just, you know, it, it might be too much for them, but you know, it, it shows that, you know, you're really passionate about what you do. So that, that's awesome. I mean, there, there's definitely a certain degree of craziness that comes with it for sure. That for you know? sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, also, um, I mean, part of it is, um, I mean, I mean, I think if, you know, anybody who wants to be a filmmaker, you know, there is this, 
degree of insanity mixed in with fearlessness. And um, one of my big uh, inspirations is uh, Werner Herzog. Uh, he he's he's a very very strong kind of outspoken um, filmmaker when it comes to um, you know lie, cheat, and steal whatever it takes to to make your film. You know, and uh, and I think you have to kind of take you know some of that approach. Um, I um, when we were filming in Lucidity, for instance. Um, we didn't have um, enough money for uh, film permits. And uh, it, it was very expensive. Shooting in Los Angeles is incredibly expensive. I'm, I'm always jealous of uh, people, you know, filmmakers that shoot in other cities because usually, you know, if you need a scene like in a restaurant or something, you can probably go talk to a restaurant owner and they're probably going to be very excited that you're going to shoot a film in their um, establishment. Well, Los Angeles is very much the opposite. You know, when you ask somebody for permission, they usually say no, or they ask for like an exorbitant amount of money for you to be there even just for, for a few hours. And uh, one of the scenes that we wanted to do for In Lucidity took place in the subway. And the way I had it in the script is that the character um, is in the subway and he's uh, very, very tired because um, he, he's... He doesn't want to go to sleep because, um, you know, every time that he closes his eyes, he's got like these horrible nightmares. So uh, he's riding the subway and um, and he closes his eyes and he falls asleep and then he wakes up and he doesn't even know that he's in a dream. But all of a sudden, the entire cart, the entire subway car is empty. There's, you know, all the passengers are gone. And uh, and he's coming face to face with this nightmarish creature that has been, um, you know, um, basically terrorizing him. So not only did we not have an official permit to go in the subway, but I also needed to be in a crowded subway one moment and then somehow magically have like an entire subway compartment that was empty completely for ourselves. And, um, and it was crazy because, I mean, we basically um, – what we did is we, we parked the car outside of the subway station. I drew um, with chalk on the ground. I, I, I drew like the schematic of where we were going to be seated. And I told the actors, I, I, I directed them ahead of time. And I said, I'm, I'm not going to be able to say action. I'm not going to be able to direct you. So we have to figure it out and, you know, and um, basically kind of stage this on this chalk outline of the seats on the subway so that everybody knows where they're going. And I'm going to be seated on one side with the cinematographer who is going to be kind of crouched and hiding his camera so that like nobody sees where, you know, that we're actually filming. And then the actors are going to be seated on the opposite side from us. And, and I'm just going to point at them and <laughs> they're going to start their scene and uh, it was crazy, you know, and um, it, it was a lot like um, it reminded me a little bit of, um, you know, like this, this movies like Ocean's Eleven, where they're like kind of planning the heist. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we were like literally planning how we're going to steal this uh, this subway scene. And then what we, um, you know, the, the plan was that like we were going to ride the train and shoot our previous scenes with all the people all the way until the end of the line. And then uh, once, you know, the, the, the idea was that like, once we get to the end of the line, all the past, all the real passengers are just gonna 
you know, get out of the train. And usually like the train stops for about like 10 minutes or so while they um, kind of, uh, you know, like do, you know, do maintenance or refuel or whatever it is that they need to do. And, and I thought, okay, we have about like 10 minutes and this is our magic time where we should have the whole card for ourselves. And this is where we shoot the nightmare scene. And, uh, and it worked out that way. And we're all like very, very nervous. And, um, you know, and I have a couple of, uh, people like the, you know, the producer was kind of keeping an eye out to see if uh, security was going to come and chase us out or, or worse, you know, they might confiscate our equipment and, and maybe like kind of fine us and all this kind of stuff. So it was very, very stressful. And, um, and we're there and we're shooting and all of a sudden, like the, the doors to the train close and, uh, and we can't, you know, and we're the only ones in there and <laughs> we can't open the doors and we're like, Oh my God. Oh no. That's it. They, they trapped us. They're keeping us in here. And the next people, you know, the next thing we know is that they're probably going to like call the police and, and basically we're kind of screwed, you know? Uh, but I figure, you know, what the hell, let's just keep shooting. You know, what, what else are we going to do? And, uh, and so we, we, we shot our whole scene, which involves this guy, like, in you know, like, as I said, Steven, uh, that was wearing the suit, he was wearing like this, uh, full creature mask, um, you know, and he's got like this weapon, which is this kind of bladed, um, t t almost like a scythe, um, you know, that he's kind of, um, you know, just kind of like, uh, swinging around and, um, you know, and, and nowadays you kind of have to be careful about that too. Right. Cause you don't want somebody to get the wrong impression. And all of a sudden, like you're endangering, you know, the actor, cause they think that maybe he's, he's got like a real blade or something, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was like this really, really stressful kind of way of shooting. And, and then the conductor comes in and steps into his little cabin and he doesn't say a word. And, and we started kind of relaxing a little bit because we saw that the cops weren't coming. And then they reopened the doors and, and little by little the passengers start pouring in. And, uh, and I was like, okay, I think, I think we're going to be okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we managed to do it, but man, it was, it was crazy. And, you know, in retrospect, I'm like, man, that, that was very insane. I can't believe that I actually, I actually did that. But you know, like you do what you need to do to get the shot, and and it worked. That takes guerrilla filmmaking to a whole new level. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like there's, uh, like I recently I, I saw this. Um, um, I, I went to see this filmmaker speak. Um, I forget I forget his name. Uh, but he he directed this. Um, kind of similar project, but even more ambitious, um, called Nino, which is based on this, uh, Asian uh, legend of this kind of mermaid, um, crypto zoology sort of uh, mythical creature. But he was talking that like they went and shot at the museum of uh, natural history here in Los Angeles, which is that much harder because now you're not only like, you know, shooting like in a place, you know, a museum, that's got like security and everybody's kind of like uptight nowadays because, you know, God knows there's like, you know, crazy terrorists that are trying to, uh, um, you know, like do some crazy stuff in, in public places. And he said that uh, they went and they shot the scene 
in very much the same way that, that we shot our subway scene. They just kind of did it. They, they walked in there and, uh, and they started filming and, um, you know, and, and it was crazy. I mean, he, he kind of, he was going through like the same exact experience that I had, you know, being like really freaked out at any moment, the cops are going to come out and they're going to shut them down and they're going to confiscate the equipment. And, um, and I was like, okay, that makes me feel a little bit better that I'm not the only crazy person here. <laughs> like you said, a little bit of craziness and a little bit of fearlessness. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that I just wanted to say real quick, uh, I, I did really like In Lucidity. I, something that's funny because me and Steve were talking about this, I think, two or three days ago. Mm -hmm. I really liked, it might sound like a very minor thing, but I really liked the opening credits. How it oh, had, thank you. How the text kind of had that almost an LED light kind of look to it. I just thought it was very appropriate to the story that you were telling. And also thank kind you. of like the very, you know, even the, the black and white scenes had a very kind of cool temperature feel to it, which I, I thought was was really good. You know, it was a good overall movie. You know, I love the visuals. I love the story. Uh, the acting was good. I, I very much enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, and, and thanks for liking the, the opening credits. I, I kind of wanted, um, uh, what I wanted to do is like to have like this almost like a feature film kind of shrunk down to about like 20, 22 minutes. And, uh, and one of the things that was very important for me is to have like proper opening credits. You know, I didn't want to just go into it. I wanted to kind of give the viewer like this um, experience of going through like a proper opening credit sequence and then we get into the story and then, you know, like um, everything else happens. So, so I'm, I'm happy that you, uh, you liked it. <laughs> well, it helps very much set the tone for the movie because, you know, if you have this, what's going to be, I'll just use this as an example. If you have a low key drama type film with very bright and obnoxious opening titles it, it doesn't fit at all and it's very jarring so yeah. I, I i very much enjoyed it well thank you thank you very much uh last question i wanted to ask you before we get out of here do you have any uh website or social media that you'd like to plug so the listeners can follow you um for sure like i mean the, the best thing the best place is probably to follow my uh vimeo channel um which, uh, let me see here. I, I should like kind of, uh, I suppose I should have had this ready. Um, well, they, they can look for, um, uh, my, my full name is, uh, you know, Kay Zalatrachi, um, on Vimeo and they'll find a link, uh, to in lucidity, but, um, they'll also find a link to, um, appointments, my first short film. And, uh, I recently directed like, um, there's another music video earlier this year um, and they can watch that anyway. Like that's, that's probably the best place to, um, you, you know, to kind of keep an eye out on, on what I'm up to. And uh, I think like uh, probably like early next year, I'm going to release my, um, my third short film called EAS, which right now is still doing the festival run. But uh, but I think uh, by early next year, we'll probably like wind down the festivals. And once again, I just want to share this stuff with everybody. So um, uh, I'll probably, you know, end up posting EAS on uh, Vimeo as well. Fantastic stuff. Well, sir, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. This was great. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed it.
Thanks again to Kazal Tracci for that awesome chat. It was great having him on the show. We'll definitely have to have him back on to talk about some of his future projects. Be sure to follow his Vimeo channel at vimeo.com slash mbkproductions. Next week, we're going to talk about acting, specifically playing a villain with actor Patrick Kilpatrick. If you're an aspiring actor, you don't want to miss the show. But until then, you can check out past episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher Radio. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. You can also follow the show on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. Thanks again, as always, to my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for this show. Their songs Late Night drive Through" and Light and Jazzy can be found on their latest album, Greetings from the Space Van, which is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks once again to Kay's Altracci, and we'll see you guys here next week with Patrick Kilpatrick.